Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for the INC preview show. My name is Carl Bainbridge. Normally, I'm joined by John Marsh and MMA as we talk over all the fights you can expect on UFC 257. John, unfortunately, though, he has a very busy schedule, as you can imagine, because we've got three cards in the space of a week. So I asked him and I said, who is the best guy that you can talk to when it comes to mixed martial arts? And he's the man on your right, John Kelly. John, thank you very much for joining me. Before anybody who might not know who you are, just give us a brief introduction to yourself. Yeah, what's going on, man? Thanks for having me on. Uh, I work over at FTN, uh, FTN Fantasy. We have basically a daily site, FTN Daily and FTN Bets. Uh, me and Jonah Schiffman uh, sort of run the show over there, there in terms of our MMA product. So we basically do a lot of what you do uh, with your show is break down fights uh, from a betting standpoint. We get a little bit more um, into the weeds in terms of like DraftKings and stuff like that. But that's pretty much it, man. Couple of couple of fight fans ready to talk UFC 257 with you. Definitely so. One of the most eagerly anticipated cards for a long, long time. Obviously because of that main event, Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor. This is also going to be the first preview show that takes place on our live channel. Um, this is just mainly just to try and clear up some of the um ruckus from the main channel so the main channel stays as it is so you're still going to be getting all the funny videos all the entertaining documentary style stuff but anything which involves seeing my ugly mug so fight reactions interviews previews are all going to be over there it's sort of like a crap version of joe rogan going to spotify i was expecting laughter for that one just sure yeah, no. I, I shouldn't go into comedy that's one of the things I've always been told. Don't go into comedy. Stick to what you know. <laughs> With that being said, though, um, it's a big thank you to John for joining me for this show. We're going to be spending the next hour or so talking over all of the fights on the main card, touching on some of the prelims. Before we get there, though, I already touched on this in a little bit more detail when we did the reaction video. We need to talk about what happened on uh, fight night. And what can we say? Max Holloway probably one of the best performances we've ever seen. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was truly incredible. I was honestly speechless. Um, it, it actually got to a point, obviously Max was terrific, but it, it really got to a point for me where I was starting to get like borderline uncomfortable with mm. the amount of damage that Calvin Cater was taking. You know, I love Calvin Cater. I never want to see anybody take take that level of damage, but when he wasn't really fighting back much that's when I was like all right like maybe it's time to call this one but then you know he did show some moments towards the end when I think a lot of people thought he was completely done and he was actually landing some uh some big shots himself it's just it speaks to the level of greatness that Max Holloway um I mean he looked incredible he ate some big shots he didn't even blink um he's talking to the commentary in between the fight saying I'm the best boxer in the UFC it was an incredible performance nothing to take away from uh what should be a nice, uh, nice uh, uh, rematch again with uh, the trilogy with uh, Volkanovski. And that's a fight that's almost certainly going to happen, not just because of Max's performance, but if you look at the other guys who are in contention, uh, you've got Yair, who's going to be AWOL. We don't 100% know the reasons for that. Uh, Zabit is another contender, but I think when you haven't fought for over a year, you need a tune-up fight. And if you go further down the pecking order... Who's next? What, Arnold Allen? And he's, what, number nine? So, really, it has to be Max after Brian Ortega. Yeah, I, I think it's Max without question. And, obviously, that's assuming Volkanovski takes care of business against Brian Ortega, which, who knows? I mean, I, I think we think he will, but you just, you never know. As we saw last night, you know, sometimes we we expect something, and then we just, you know, it's it absolutely surprises us. I thought that fight with Calvin Cater was going to, be at least competitive and it was just i mean two different levels of of striking talent there a fantastic performance and i i am intrigued to see how calvin Cater reacts from that because sometimes you do get those big beatdowns where a fighter isn't the same afterwards and i hope for calvin Cater's sake that isn't the case but that was tough to watch and i think especially after the spencer fisher stories as well you did. I was in the same board as you. I thought end of the fourth round, he's kind of should have just said, "That's it for your own safety." Yeah, I'm. I'm right there with you. It it did start to get a little bit uncomfortable. Um, like I said, I mean, I would I would have been fine with a stoppage there, um, but you know, I think Max. I w I want to think he sort of took his 
foot off the pedal a little bit just because he did start to clinch up a little bit. And I think he realized, you know, he's he's cruising to victory here. There's no need to uh, to take years off the life of Calvin Cater. So. So that was a big story that happened yesterday. Another big story could be happening in two months' time because we like to talk about some of the big stories in the world of mixed martial arts. And one of the biggest ones concerns UFC 259. Uh, another title fight was added to that card. Aljamain Sterling takes on Piotr Jan. And I have to say, the UFC are really front-loading the start of this year. And 259 is going to be the crux of that because we've got a truckload of fights of course, being headlined by Adesanya and Jan Blachowicz. Yeah, that card, I mean, this might be the best card ever if it stays together. You know, obviously, it's a couple months away, but you, you mentioned it. We have Israel Adesanya uh, fighting on that card. We have the Puter Jan, Aljamain Sterling. We have a lot of underrated cards as well, or uh, fight matchups as well. Dominic Cruz against Casey Kenny and what should be a banger. I mean, the card is is loaded from top to bottom, so I can't wait for uh, really the whole month of March. There's a couple decent cards coming up. I think there's a big question in regards to, and I was discussing this with a lot of people, because I can't criticize the UFC for putting these super shows together. I think if you're paying $60, $70 for a pay-per-view, you want to get value for money. But I do remember what happened at the end of 2020, where the UFC started loading a lot of these big cards, and then by the end of the year, you are having to pay Davison Figueroa to defend his title twice in two months, to, just because you had no more headliners for that December show. And sometimes I do think to myself, yes, it's good to have these big cards, well, considering Adesanya pulled, what, 700,000 buys before Paulo Costa, maybe it might be wise to save some of these extra title fights, some of these bigger matchups, when they're a little bit more necessary. Like you could put Jan versus Sterling as the core main to Kamara Usman and Gilbert Burns. Maybe put Nunes versus Anderson as a TV headliner. I just think front-loading, it can be risky. As a fan, I have no issue with it. I just like to think... I mean, I don't want Jessica Ryan and Cynthia Calvillo headlining another fight night, to put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think anybody does. I mean, it's a good point you bring up. You know, I think that Peter Jan, Aljamain Sterling, I think that's like the first fight up on the main card. And you said it, that could be a co-main or even a headliner in itself. So it, it's just kind of interesting. But on the flip side of that is like, you know, I, I know we did run into that where they kind of ran out of big fights at the end of the year. Uh, but I mean, we are still in the middle of a pandemic and and it always matters too. like sometimes injuries happen. You know, we were supposed to get uh, Burns, Kamara, Usman, like things change, obviously. But I, I'm with you. I think uh, having a good balance is probably uh, probably key. But at the same time, I'm not going to complain come March because that that fight card's absolutely loaded. Certainly so. And we'll really be looking forward to talking about that one when we get to it. But now, though, we're going to be sticking to January. Uh, seven days' time, Conor McGregor is back in the octagon. He's doing so against Dustin Poirier. Before we get to that fight, though, we need to talk about the prelims. They're going to be showing up on the screen right now. Um, what are the big fights that really stand out for you when it comes to these seven matchups? We've already lost two so far. They got moved to other cards. Um, fingers crossed we don't lose any more, but obviously, given the circumstances, that isn't a guarantee. Uh, what's a big fight that stands out for you in the prelims? Yeah, there's a couple of matchups here that I think are pretty interesting. Um, I have my eye on a few. Obviously, you know, as a, a DFS player or a handicapper, you know, obviously you're going to have more interest in the fights that you like to bet on or wager on. So uh, one that sticks out to me is Sarah McMahon, Juliana Pena. Uh, that one, I did place a bet on Sarah McMahon. I feel pretty confident in that. You know, former Olympic wrestler, I think that's going to be huge here against Juliana Pena, who struggles to defend takedowns. Uh, one of the worst rates in the UFC at only 28%. So I just think somebody that's going to come in and we know she's going to wrestle. She averages four and a half takedowns per 15. I think McMahon's going to control her on the mat. And really the only question it the only way that she can lose this fight is if she gasses out after the first round which has kind of been like her uh you know that's sort of like the narrative on her but the last time we saw her in the octagon she actually looked pretty fr uh fresh through three rounds so i like sarah mcmahon here i think she has a pretty massive wrestling advantage and i think that's how the fight plays out the biggest issue i've always had when it comes to sarah mcmahon though is i don't think she's all that great when it comes to defending submissions 
she has been caught a couple of times mario Renault did that and i think as well when she isn't controlling the game with her wrestling she seems a little bit unsure over what to do next um what, what i will say though i think the scary thing is when you look at that division and i'll be quite vocal about this i'm not a big fan of women's bantamweight in the state that it's in this is arguably i wouldn't call it a title eliminator but but you're moving this the winner of this fight is second in line after holly and jermaine which just shows that like the lack of depth that the division's got right now yeah, certainly. And this is one where for Sarah McMahon, you know, she's 40 years old. So if she's ever going to make a push um, towards the top of the division or or potentially for a title fight, I mean, it's got to be now. So she's going to have to make a, a an impressive performance to uh, throw her name in the hat in this division. The fight I'm really intrigued by is the uh, prelim headliner. Nasrat Akhbar. I knew I was going to mess up that name. I'm just going to call him Nasrat. Nasrat taking on Armin Sarukian, lightweight bout. Uh, Nasrat, who most people know as sort of a skinny Kelvin Gaslam, takes on Sarukian, who a lot of people don't know this guy, but those who do rate him very highly. He really got onto a lot of people's radar after that match against Islam Markachev, where I think he stepped in on like a week's notice, took on Mark Markachev, who was very highly regarded, and pushed him all the way in a very competitive bout. Yeah, it was. I was really impressed with Sarukian. Uh, you mentioned it. Short notice UFC debut against a guy who we know is well regarded in Makachev, and he looked impressive. He lost the fight, but he made it a lot closer than I think we all expected. And so that's what kind of put him on everybody's radar. And since then, we've seen the progression. Like his last time out against Davi Hamos, that was where I was like, this this kid has the potential to be like a legitimate star in the UFC. Like he looked that good his last time out. And on the flip side, Nazrat Hakparas, he's another guy that I think, you know, at, at least has a decent skill set. Obviously, he was knocked out against Drew Dober, um, but can't take anything away from Drew Dober is an excellent boxer and he just countered him perfectly. But Hakparas has quick hands. The the problem with Hakparas is like it's almost like if he doesn't land that early big power shot then he's kind of fighting from behind. And against a guy like Sarukian, who I think is going to have the athletic advantage, is going to have a clear speed advantage and a wrestling advantage, it's just a brutal matchup for Hackpress. So I'm on the same side as you. I like Sarukian in this one. I think what this undercard is doing, and we've sort of seen this a lot when it comes to the Connor cards, is with UFC 229, they really front-loaded it. So they had a lot of... It was almost as if the UFC said we're going to be having a lot more extra eyeballs on this card. And they used it to sort of like showcase the best of the UFC. Recently, they started to take the approach where it's about showcasing guys who maybe don't get paid as much, but can be big possible stars of the future. And you could see that with guys like Sarukian or Nasrat. Uh, they're very high on Khalil Roundtree. He's on the undercard as well. We're going to be talking about this um, in a little bit later when it comes to Favola and um, Eisenhower. Uh, another example of these sort of like unearthed prospects who can get the bump that comes with Conor McGregor Shaw. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the Roundtree Prachnio fight. That's one where both guys have obvious knockout power, but they also have like legitimate durability concerns. So if you're looking at that fight, you know, especially from a betting standpoint, um, you definitely probably want to take a look at the prop market. You know, first round KO props on either guy are probably a little bit interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for uh, that Azatar for Vola matchup. I know we talked a little bit offline about that one. If you want to get into that one, um, I think it could be pretty interesting. Any other fights to take your interest before we move on to the main card? Uh, yeah, actually, the uh, Joanne Calderwood, or is that on the main card? That's on the main card. Okay, sorry. Uh, the uh, Amanda Hebos, is that the main card? That's the main card as well. So, all right, sorry. Yeah, we can move on we to the main card. I'm obviously excited with the uh, the main card, at least, leading up to the Conor McGregor fight. And on that note, we will, we will move on to the first fight of this main card, and we're going to the strawweight division, and it is Marina Rodriguez, who's taken on Amanda Hebas. Got the betting odds for this one here. You can get Hebas as a favorite at minus 300. Uh, Marina Rodriguez coming in at plus 230. A battle of two rising strawweight prospects. Uh, Rodriguez is taking this one on short notice in replacing Michelle Watson. So maybe that's factoring into the odds a little bit. 
a lot of people though are going into this fight very high on Amanda Hebas and after what she did in 2020 it's very easy to see why yeah I'm I'm also uh, team Hebas I, I think she's going to be a USC champion one day um, and it, I, I don't think we're even going to have to wait too long you know she's looked absolutely incredible since entering into the UFC you know she was she had some hype coming into the UFC ended up serving like almost a two-year USADA suspension um, and then came back you know submitted Emily Whitmire and we've seen the uh, the progression each time out you know we, she looked amazing against Mackenzie Dern and the way she beat Mackenzie Dern was what was most impressive to people Mackenzie Dern the high-level world-class submission grappler and Amanda Hebos just took her down multiple times and just controlled her easily on the mat. Anything that Mackenzie was throwing up from her back, Hebos just, you know, she sniffed it out and, and defended it perfectly. So uh, I think she's super impressive. It's not just the ground game. She's just extremely well-rounded. She has an excellent jab. Um, in terms of this matchup against Marina Rodriguez, who we know also has some good boxing. She's a high-volume striker, lands over five significant strikes per minute. I think this fight could be competitive on the feet i think he boss could even win it on the feet but it's not the clearest path to victory for her. that would obviously be if she does go to the wrestling um you know R rodriguez that's been the leak in her game she defends takedowns at 61 percent uh we saw against carla esparza who took her down five times uh she lost that split decision she drew against cynthia calvillo and against random marcos and that was really just because she was beating them up on the feet but then once they took her down, you know, she struggled to get back to her feet, doesn't have much off her back. And against somebody like Hebas, I, I think she's outgunned here. So give me Amanda Hebas. I'm going to be favoring Hebas for this one as well. And for a lot of the same reasons, I think that I think Marina Rodriguez is I think she's a very underrated fighter when it comes to the striking. Uh, tall, she's rangy. And she showed that when she fought Calvillo because she was piecing Calvillo up in the stand up. But as you mentioned before, when the fight goes to the ground, She's a little bit clueless. She got controlled by Carla Esparza, who is tiny for that division. As good of a wrestler Carla is, she, I wouldn't say Carla overpowers people. She's got good technique to get in there, and she controlled a much bigger fighter on the ground, and Marina just seemed clueless. Same with what happened against Calvillo. Um, but when it is standing, we saw what she did against Tisha Torres, just completely neutralized a strong wrestle boxer. Um... And I think if she does use that reach advantage, that's probably her best way to win. But Hebas is a very complete fighter. We know how good she is on the ground. She showed that against Paige Van Zandt. Showed that, as you mentioned before, against Dern. But she's got the stand-up as well. She was piecing up Whitmire before that submission. And she was doing the same thing to Dern, which helped set up those judo throws and those takedowns. Um, if there is maybe a concern when it comes to Amanda Hebas, though, it's... Well, she does have that one loss on the record, Pollyanna Vinana. Uh, she charged in, trying to um, set up the striking, charged in, and ended up getting caught coming in, and that's how she ended up with that one on her record. Is there a chance maybe that could happen again when it comes to Marina, who maybe doesn't have the power, but she certainly has the technique? Yeah, I mean, anything's possible. We see it all the time. You know, we think we know what's going to happen. And then it's like something happens and we're just like, wow, didn't see that coming. So, I mean, it's always possible. Um, at the same time, though, um, you know, her chin's kind of been checked since then. Mm. And it seems to check out. And that was really, you know, she was, what, 21 years old at that point? 21 or 23. She was very young. And I, I go back to the progression that we've seen from her each time out. Um, I, I'd still be pretty surprised if it does happen. But like you said, I mean, it's a, a high-variant sport that we uh, that we take interest here in the UFC. Yeah, just looking over Marina's stats here, um, she's looking up for her first UFC finish. She had four out of ten of her fights went to a decision in, I'll try and rephrase that, um, of her 10 fights pre-UFC, four of those went to a decision. She's been five out of five since then. So the likelihood of a Marina Rodriguez finish is very unlikely. Um, what is the ceiling for Amanda Hebas? Obviously, we've talked about her in terms of how good she could be in terms of success. But could we be looking at her as a big female star? Because the UFC seemed to really be positioning her in that way based on the treatment she was getting after the Paige Van Zandt fight. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, the UFC identified quickly the potential 
um, for her to be a star in, in the UFC, just because like, obviously, you know, say what you want. The UFC wants to promote like better, better looking people. She's a good looking girl. She, and she fights well too. And a good personality too. And a good personality. She's very happy, uh, positive person. So it's just all of those things the UFC wants to promote. And then she backs it up in the cage. So it's like, it's just a combination of things. So in terms of her ceiling, I mean, she, I, I think she is going to be a star if, if you don't consider her one already. That being said, though, um, the USC went really into overdrive to promote Hebas. And then Hamza comes along three days later. <laughs> so it's just like, oh, we've got this fancy new toy. Yeah, whatever. What go away now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so final predictions, who's winning this and what's the method? I like Amanda Hebos here by decision. I think I wouldn't be shocked by a submission, but she's more of like a position over submission type of, of ground game, just especially when she has that wrestling advantage. You know, we saw it against Mackenzie Dern. Uh, we've seen it in really all of her fights. When she lands those takedowns, she averages over two uh, per 15. So I think she lands multiple takedowns here, but I don't expect her to sell out for that submission. So I think it's just more control time. I think we see her win a decision. I'm seeing something very similar to what we saw with Pivas versus Dern. A lot of takedowns, uh, a lot of control on the ground, but we don't get that finish. So I'm going to say that Pivas takes this one by decision, same as you. Maybe even 30-26. I like it. And I hope you like our lightweight encounter, which is the second fight on the card. Uh, a bit of a late addition to the main card, this one. It was supposed to be Khalil Roundtree taking on Marcin Prakniao. They shifted it around and instead we're going to be seeing Matt, the Steamroller Favola, versus the Bulldozer, Ottoman Azaitar. So Steamroller versus Bulldozer, which is either coincidence or Mick Maynard absolutely loves his heavy machinery. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You were, you were waiting for the laugh from me. There you go. I, you got me on that one. That was good. Um, I, I, I do like this matchup. I think Matt Favola is somebody, you know, he's kind of that journeyman fighter, durable guy. He has been hurt in the past, but for the most part, he's pretty durable. And he really just seems to kind of outperform just due to his skill set because he's just like a grindy type wrestler uh, who's tough and he's just going to withstand the early um, kind of attack. You know, we saw it against Jalen Turner. I go back to that fight because I see that kind of similar to this matchup where you have a guy who's a powerful puncher and Favola uh, withstands the early storm and then takes over late with that wrestling. And that's what he's going to need to do here against Atman Azatar, who's 13-0. Ten of his wins come by knockout. Eight of those have come inside the first round. So we know he's got that punching power, but he also hasn't been extended mm -hmm. very often. And that's key here because Matt Frivola, that's literally his game plan is he's going to use a lot of cage control, make it dirty, make it ugly, mix in that wrestling and take the power out of those sales of Azatar. So I think this one is either going to be early knockout Azatar but where I'm more leaning is Frivola withstands the early pressure and then takes over late. So uh, Frivola by decision. I think Frivola for me, I've always, I describe fighters like Matt Frivola as, I sort of call them action fighters. The guys who, they're probably never going to be champion. They're probably never going to be the top 15. But you can always rely on them to put on these sort of scrappy brawls, which just help fill out a fight night. Like I put Lando Venato in the same bracket, or if you go up to Walter people like Vincent Luque, Nico Price, etc. Just those sort of reliable names that you can always go to to get an entertaining match. And Favola is one of those people. Um, I love the fight with Jalen Turner. The Luis Pena fight was incredibly competitive. Uh, I watched that one with a couple of my friends, and I think that was the Joanna versus Watterson card, and that was their favorite fight on that card. They, they love that matchup. Um, I think Vivald is going to be a real gauge of how good Azaitar is because we've seen this guy 13-0, 2-0 in the UFC, both of these wins coming in the first round. The Parkland knockout, arguably one of the best knockouts of 2019. But if you look at the guy, you mentioned it before, 10 wins in the first round. He doesn't usually get tested when he goes to the distance and certainly not against grapplers. So I'm intrigued to see how he's going to handle a guy in Favola who's very hard to put away in the first round. Yeah, I, I, I think we pretty much covered that one. I think it's either Azatar 
does land that big shot early, or we see for Vola, the tides kind of change. For Vola takes over in the second and third round. So I, I think you bring up a good point, though, that it is kind of like a, a, a good way to gauge just how good Ottman Azatar is currently or how good he can be. But they don't lose anything either if Vola was to win this one. It's not as if they put all their eggs into the Azatar basket, as it were, and that they're going to come up short if Favola wins this. You can still get a lot of upside from Matt Favola because he's only lost one fight in his career. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point too. And and it's one of those things where it's like a loss to Matt Favola. You know, that's kind of, you know, it's not going to take away from Azatar. It's more of just like a learning experience. Sometimes it's good to see them get that first loss against a tough, durable guy like him. And then he can go back to the drawing board and, and work on things, and then we see a better version, hopefully, his next time out, too. Do you think it's going to affect Vibola? Because a lot of the times recently, he's been booked against these tall, rangy strikers. So he's been fighting the likes of Pena. He was booked against Roosevelt Roberts. The height difference between himself and Azatar isn't that different. Is that going to play any sort of factor? I, I Honestly, I think it'll be a little bit easier for Vibola uh, just because he's had to deal with such rangy guys. You mentioned it. Jalen Turner is super long for this division. Uh, Luis Pena, another guy, super long and rangy. So if anything, I think it'll be even easier for Frivola not to have to eat as many of those shots when he's closing the distance. So we'll see if he's able to execute because uh, his boy Billy Q didn't look as good as uh, we thought they would. You know, those guys are training partners. Uh, Billy didn't look so hot his last time out. So we'll see if Frivola can, uh, can right the ship. You did make a good point there in terms of the training camp because I believe Favola is uh, Sirolongo. So he's got Aljamain Sterling in there. He's got Chris Weidman, as you mentioned, Billy Q as well. So grappling is going to be a big forte of that team. And I haven't seen Azatar tested, at least not in the UFC, in those areas. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the biggest question mark is can he... Uh, is he going to have the cardio to go the full three rounds? And and if he's stuffing takedowns early, is he going to be able to stuff them second and third round? You know, if he's taking down, what does he look like off his back? These are all questions that I think we'll, we'll have answered by next Saturday. And the answer that you need to give me now is who's going to win this one? Yeah, so I, originally I was leaning towards Azatar by knockout, but the more that I dug into this fight, the more I think Frivola just takes over late, and this kind of plays out similarly to his last two fights. So I like Frivola uh, winning a decision here. I'm going to go in the same uh, boat as well. I think that really you're only going to get one of two results here. Azatar winning this in the first round by knockout, or Frivola grinding out a decision. And as good as Azatar's been, and especially when you look at him sort of pre-UFC, I mean, this guy isn't a can crush yet. He's been fighting, he fought like a 6-1 fighter in his second pro fight, 7-0, 6-1. So he's been fighting some decent fighters, and I think he was the Brave Lightweight Champion. And we've seen with uh, Hamzat what Brave have been doing in terms of their prospects. So he's got, I'm trying to think of the right word here, he's got the backing for it. When you look at that portfolio, there's there's something about him. I mean, this isn't this isn't like Nadia Castle. This isn't like an Aussie fight team situation where they're like 20 wins in a row against all in 11 fighters. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I think he's. I I think it's it's just one of those things where we we think we know how good he is, and this is just gonna tell us that on Saturday. Yes. It's gonna gauge where where exactly he's at currently. So we're both going for Volta to win that one by decision. Mm-hmm. Fight number three on our card. Now, if there is one fight on the main card where there was a little bit of ridicule, there was a little bit of, should this really be on there, you could argue that it's this fight here, which is no offense to the two girls in question. Jessica Rye is taking on Juan Caldwood. A lot of bad blood between those two uh, in the build-up to this. They've been wanting this fight for a long time. People have been asking, why is this on the main card? And I have to be honest, I think part of it could possibly be sort of the UFC rewarding the company women. Because if you go back to 2020, both these girls had bad years for their own respective reasons. But they also did so for the benefit of the UFC because we had that ESPN fight card where nobody wanted the headline, wanted to go five rounds. And Jessica Rice stepped into her headline against Cynthia Calvillo. Uh, Joanne Caldwell, she was supposed to fight Valentina Shevchenko. 
would happily gave that up to fight Jennifer Meyer to save that card, which I think was Brunson and Shabazian. That was the co-main. And yes, both girls ended up losing those matches, but I feel like this is the UFC saying, hey, it's bad what happened last year, but you stepped up, took one for the team, and we're going to reward you by putting you on a Conor undercard. Is that just me being a bit of a conspiracy nut, or can you see where we're coming from here? No, I, th- I think that's a great point. That's That's got to be part of it. Um, but, you know, take nothing away from Joanne Calderwood. That's my girl, Jojo. You know, I, I actually really like her in this spot. You know, obviously it's unfortunate. You mentioned it. She had the title shot, um, decided to fight Jennifer Maya instead and, and sort of just lost her shot because Jennifer Maya looked great. You know, she was able to use that pressure boxing and it really gave Jojo some problems. Uh, I, I just don't see that happening in this matchup. You know, I'm historically pretty low or at least lower than the market on Jessica. I, she's somebody that, you know, she's beaten some okay people and then sort of got like put on this pedestal. Like we rushed her into a title shot where she got flatlined by Shevchenko. And now it's like, she, they're still trying to treat her. Like she has this big name value. You know, I faded her against Cynthia Calvillo. Um, and I plan on doing the same with Joanne Calderwood here. Calderwood lands twice as much volume on the feet. She lands over six significant strikes per minute. She's, I, I think she's going to get off with kicks in this game. She throws a ton of kicks. I think that's going to give Jessica I problems. But what's really going to give her problems is when JoJo mixes in those takedowns. Mm-hmm. She aver- she averages just under two per 15. Uh, but in this matchup and in other matches where she does have a wrestling advantage, you've seen her be more aggressive with the wrestling Jessica I, obviously, bad takedown defense, 56%. You know, that's really the clearest edge, I think, in this fight. So, I like the Joanne Calderwood side. What about it? And the other factor as well when it comes to JoJo and those takedowns. Uh, One, because she's fighting a heavier weight class than she was at straw weight, she's a lot more confident going in for those. And also, she's training at Syndicate. And Syndicate has some great women grapplers on there as well. So... I still don't think it's her wheelhouse. I still think she prefers to keep it standing, but it is a good go-to for Jojo if she needs it. And I think she's going to, considering what we've seen from Jessica Rye throughout her career. And I actually think in a lot of ways, what that Cynthia Calvillo fight did, that to me is the quintessential Jessica I fight for me. When the fight is standing, she does have some decent one-two combinations. She has a powerful left hook. She's got a good jab. And in purely a boxing match, she's maybe able to grind out those sort of close decision wins and get herself a result. But the moment the fight goes to the ground and she does get taken down, she's clueless. Mm-hmm. And I've got the feeling that Jojo's going to go in with that game plan. She's going to go very grappling heavy and she's going to try and grind out a decision against Jessica Rye. Where I think Jessica Rye is going to have maybe an advantage in this though is... Jess's striking style is very much about pressure. She likes being aggressive, and we saw that when she fought uh, Caitlin Chukasian, who was a very awkward fighter to deal with in a stand-up. She won that fight just by not letting Chukasian get comfortable on the outside. She kept pushing forward, she kept making it dirty and aggressive, and she ended up basically winning over the judges doing that. It was a very close fight. I scored it for Chukasian, but Jess the right game plan to deal with Chukasian. And if she applies that pressure striking style, we saw how many problems that gave Jojo when she fought Jennifer Meyer. Yeah, you bring up some good points. Um, just to counter a little bit, though, the things where I see uh, where I, I think that can't really happen is, for starters, I think Jennifer Maya is just a better boxer uh, than Jessica I, and she's a solid boxer as well. Uh, but I think she has more power, um, a little bit more technical on the feet as well. And where I see Ka- Caitlin Chikagian always sort of lets people back her up um, and, and sort of uh, dictate the pressure in that fight. Uh, JoJo, I think with her kicks, she's going to be able to maintain range better. And if she does start to, you know, if you see the tides kind of changing, Jessica I controlling the center, uh, landing some good shots, then I think we see the level changes out of Joanne Calderwood. So even if uh, we do kind of see that close boxing match playing out. Then we have the wrestling in our back pocket. So I like the Calderwood side. I think she wins a decision here. And I've never seen Jessica Rye go for any sort of takedowns, for any takedowns, any sort of submissions off her back. So Jojo doesn't have that worry in the same way she did with Jennifer Meyer. If she does go to the ground. 
Yeah, that's that's another good point. And JoJo's grappling, I think, is a little bit underrated too. I think she's a purple belt, uh, but you mentioned it. Jessica I is is really just a fish out of water on the mat. So I I definitely favor Calderwood if it does hit the canvas. What's the future for these two ladies if they were to win or lose? Because George, with the way the women's flyweight is, when we got Shevchenko going through so many competitors. In, uh, Jess already had a chance. Obviously, we know how that turned out. Not likely she's going to get a rematch. But Jojo is always going to be in that conversation. And of course, she's one of the USC's favorite fighters. So that's going to help in that regard as well. We could be looking at the winner of this one possibly being third in line. Because it's going to be Jessica Andrade. Then probably Lauren Murphy. Could we say Jojo, if she wins this one, she moves back into third place? I mean, it's it's definitely possible. The, these are, are it's kind of tough to say too because it it always matters how they win. Like if she wins a boring wrestling based decision, you know, Data White's not going to be like give her Shevchenko. Like it's just not going to happen. You mentioned it, Jessica Andrade, who looked excellent her last time out um, uh, with the body shot knockout against Caitlin Chikagian. Um, So you know, obviously, they're going to want to promote fighters who have that type of style and have looked that good off their recent performance. So I think a lot of it depends on just how this fight plays out. So I think if Calderwood maybe makes a statement and and looks just excellent, blown away, then maybe we see her in the top three. Um, but if we see sort of the grindy, uh, good, but kind of boring decision here, then I, I think it's one of those take a ticket, wait in line type deals. And Jessica Rye is a very difficult fighter to finish. I think she's only ever been stopped twice in her career. So if Giorgio was to stop her, that would be a big feather in that regard. Absolutely. Core main event time. Now, it's a very intriguing core main event, this one. It is in the lightweight division. And we all know what Dana White said when he talked about that Khabib announcement, in inverted commas. Um, basically, the winner of this fight could potentially uh, be enough to coax Khabib back out of retirement. That's what Dana said. I'm a bit more skeptical, which I obviously covered in the video. I bring this up because it's a lightweight encounter between Dan Hooker and the UFC newcomer Michael Chandler. So there are going to be people out there who don't even know what the hell Bellator is. They think it's just some sort of weird Latin phrase, but whatever. For anybody who might not know who Michael Chandler is, give us a little bit of backstory. Yeah, I mean, he certainly looks the part, you know, UFC's hyping him up like this is a, a major deal. And, and it really is. We'll see come Saturday just how major. But he's the like three time champion over in Bellator, I believe, former Division One All-American wrestler. Um, and that's really his base is that high level wrestling. But he's got hands as well. He's got power in his hands, has a bunch of knockouts to his record. Um, and he's coming off a two fight win streak with both of them coming on off of first round knockouts. Uh, where I see the the questions in this matchup is like, A, what what's the talent gap in terms of not just Bellator and the UFC, but the guys he's fighting in Bellator versus the top, the upper echelon of this division. And Dan Hooker, you know, he's probably top five in this division. So it's really going to be, we're, we're going to get our answers really quickly on just how how good Michael Chandler really is come Saturday. I understand the UFC making a big deal about Chandler. I think if you've got any sort of high-profile free agent or high-profile guy from another promotion, you want to make it, it feel worthwhile. And I think Michael Chandler is to an extent. Obviously, if there's one Bellator fight that everybody's seen, it's the match he had with Eddie Alvarez, which is, if that was a UFC fight, that would be... Like, that would be up there with sort of like with Lawler versus McDonald in terms of those great encounters. It was a fantastic matchup. That Michael Chandler, I would have been very excited to see in the UFC. This one, at 34 years old, yes, he's on a winning streak, but one of those was against Benson Henderson, who's 37 years old, arguably past his prime. I question whether we're getting the best Michael Chandler. It reminds me a little bit of another grappler from Bellator who came in a couple of years ago with a lot of fanfare, a certain Mr. Askren. Is this just, is this Dana sort of serving up a pup, trying to make a guy seem like a big deal and then throwing him to the wolves? Because we know what Dana's like. We've seen this plenty of times before. Dana loves to get one up the competition if he gets the chance. Is Chandler being used in this sort of way again? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it, it's a win-win for the UFC because it's like you throw him to the wolves. If he, if he comes back leading the pack, then, okay, this guy's the real deal, and now we can promote him. And if he doesn't, it's like, okay, now we're just showing that the UFC talent is that much better, and you can be the king over there, and you, you'll lose to a top-five guy like Dan Hooker. Um, so it's just one of those things where you, you bring up Ben Askren, and I see the similarities. You know, a former um, awesome wrestler, uh, looks good, real good in other divisions, but then comes over in the UFC towards the tail end of his mm-hmm. career— and it, it just doesn't materialize here. So where I think there's a little bit of positives for Chandler as opposed to Ben Askren is, A, he's a little bit younger, so he's got a little bit more of the shelf life. But also, he has hands. Yes. And he has power. And those are things that Ben Askren does not have. Ben Askren, I, I think, is a horrible striker. And Michael Chandler at least has the power. Um, whether he can do that a full three rounds with Dan Hooker, who we know has taken – insane amounts of damage in his last couple fights um so yeah we'll see i mean the dustin poirier fight was excellent um the paul felder fight was excellent i don't know if michael chandler can go to that place against dan against a guy like dan hooker but we'll find out come saturday someone described michael chandler and i think this is a great comparison he's sort of like a lightweight chad mendez he's primarily a grappler but he uses the threat of those takedowns to set up those big power punches Maybe he is a bit, he ta- he's a bit of a headhunter sometimes, which is one of his detriments. But as you mentioned before, he does have good power. And I am intrigued to see how he handles that up against Dan Hooker. Because for me, for me, the sign of a great fight is when the loser comes out of it with their stock raised. And in my opinion, Dan Hooker did that when he fought Dustin Poirier. Because we run the polls on uh, our YouTube channel. And people were giving like Dan Hooker what, like 18% chance of beating Dustin Poirier. He ran him very, very close in that fight. And especially in that second round, um, he looked he looked very good. Now, whether that was because Dustin Poirier was maybe off form or Dan Hooker looked amazing, that's maybe to be determined. Dan Hooker is worthy of being in the top five of this division. He is a very, very good fighter. Yeah, no arguments for me. And that's the biggest thing is like, yeah, I think Chandler has these skill sets, but this is a tough matchup because Dan Hooker, we know he's he's made a living on stuffing takedowns and going to war on the feet. So if he's able, you know, he has strong takedown defenses. If he's able to keep this standing, I'd be surprised if Chandler has that power to knock him out because his chin has looked so good in his last couple fights where it's like he, he's a super durable guy. So Chandler's going to have to match that pace and be landing those shots for 15 minutes. And those are all things that I, I don't know if he's going to be able to do if he can't land those takedowns. And I think that's going to be hard as well, considering the reach advantage that Dan Hooker has. Dan Hooker is one of the taller light heavyweights in on the UFC roster. And as we saw against Ross Pearson when he landed that flying knee, a uh, great finishing instincts, and I just think against a shorter, stockier guy like Chandler, I think it's going to be very difficult for Michael to get in and try and make this into that dirty brawl that he needs to to get a result. I think stylistically, stylistically, I think there's better fights out there for Michael Chandler. I think a good one for me, which would have been ideal for him, is someone like Paul Felder. That's the sort of fight I would have given him. Dan Hooker is, for me, a nightmare matchup for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we pretty much hit on it all together. I think it's just a tough matchup. I think Hooker has the experience. We've at least seen him go to war with the top guys in this division, and we haven't seen that from Chandler, and I'm not sure Chandler's capable of doing that. So I like Hooker by decision. I think he keeps the fight standing, stuffing the takedowns, and I think he beats him up on the feet. So I have Hooker by decision, uh, maybe even a late finish. I think we're going to see a lot of body work from uh, Dan Hooker. It's going to cause Chandler some problems in that first round. And Hook goes for the finish in a second. I like it. It's a bit of a controversial one. I know there's a lot of hype around Michael Chandler uh, going into this, but you just got to go where you got. Um, what I will say, though, is with the way the lightweight division is, as much as I do love Dan Hooker, could it arguably be more beneficial for the UFC if Chandler was to win this? Because then you'd have win over a top five opponent, and then he starts entering the matches with the Justin Gages the Tony Ferguson's, the Oliveras of the world, which are arguably 
a bit more compelling for the UFC than, say, a Dan Hooker win? Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. You know, they probably, like I said, it's a win-win, though. I mean, even if he loses here, he's still going to get, he's still going to get a name. You know, we saw it with Ben Askren. I know he beat Robbie Lawler, but let's be honest. In he, inverted commas. He got, the, he got the crap kicked out of him and then beat Robbie Lawler. And then he got he got some a few big names after that. So it's like, even if Chandler loses here, it's a respectable loss. And then I think they still find him a decent fight. You know, Tony Ferguson's coming off a loss as well. That that name comes to mind if Tony be willing to take Chandler coming off a loss. I know they've they've kind of had some banter back and forth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's fights regardless of who wins here. If Dan Hooker wins, that's where I think it gets more interesting because it's like, okay, well, we, we already saw the Felder fight. We gave him Dustin Poirier. He looked great, but he still lost. So it's like, where... Where who does he fight next? It's really intriguing. I think the lightweight, and that's why I'm so disappointed with the UFC because of what they're doing with uh, Khabib. The sort of he's retired, but he's not really just the sort of limbo of the lightweight title. Because you've got so many compelling, interesting what if scenarios surrounding that belt, which we're arguably not going to see because I think the UFC. I think the UFC want Khabib versus Conor too, and you can understand why from the business perspective. But keeping the belt hostage to try and make that happen isn't good for the division. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think he's gonna. I mean, he came out and said like, "I'm not going to keep the division on hold." So basically, we're just kind of waiting to see what happens Saturday. And we talked offline. You know, that was sort of what we were expecting is that somebody's going to have to do something. And mainly, I mean, I know he he hyped up the the Dan Hooker Michael Chandler fight, but let's be honest. Even if we see something spectacular out of either of them, I highly doubt Khabib comes back to fight one of them. So we're really just talking about Connor and Dustin and mainly Connor. Uh, Habib said, ba basically, if somebody does something special, then he'll decide, yeah, I'll come back and defend the belt. If he's not impressed or he doesn't want to do it, then he won't. Obviously, everybody's thinking we're going to see McGregor, Habib next. That's what the UFC wants. That's what the people want. And that's what Connor has said that he's want. And we know he usually has a big hand in, uh, in making these type of fights happen. So we'll see. I mean, obviously, he has to perform on Saturday, and we'll get into to that fight next. But I'm sort of just viewing it as that main card is really what happens. I know Dan Hooker and Michael Chandler is great, too. And and that'll be a fun fight. But it's like in terms of Habib and his decision, I, I don't think the co-main really has any relevance on it. Right. Here we go. Main event time. This is the one that most people are going to be interested in. This is the one which we'll probably be doing our own individual video on to preview this fight. We're going back to the lightweight division. It is Dustin Poirier taking on the notorious Conor McGregor. Now let's set the scene first and foremost. UFC 178, 2014. Dustin Poirier is the number five featherweight in the world and he's taking on Conor McGregor who's this highly rated young Irish fighter who I think was number nine at the time. So Poirier enters that fight as the bookmaker's favorite but as we get closer to that card, McGregor takes over that role as the favorite and finishes them in the first round. Conor McGregor goes on to become arguably the biggest star that the sport's ever seen. Dustin Poirier uses this to go up to lightweight and completely rebuilds his career. He's been 9-2 in the UFC since then. His only losses against Michael Johnson and Khabib, which no shame in that at all, losing against Khabib. Conor, of course, he's had his demons outside the cage. He's gone on, he's had matches with Nate Diaz, double champ status, and yet... Seven years later, these two reunite again. Big, highly anticipated rematch. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot of rematches from the UFC later this year. A lot of different fights. This, for me, is what a rematch should be. Because there's been so many different factors between the two fighters which have changed. That this is essentially a completely different match than the first one back at 178. Yeah, you bring up a great point there because it's like there, there's so many differences, but at the same time, I, I think we we sort of expect it to play out the same way. At least for me, it's like I, I have a hard time envisioning 
any other outcome outside of a McGregor first round knockout. And it's not just because, yeah, that's what he did the first time, took him 40 seconds, but that's really what Connor always does. You know, 19 of his 22 wins have come by knockout. And all of those have been inside the first two rounds. So we know he's a quick starter. Um, he, he did exactly what he said he was going to do the first time. He said he's going to knock him out. You know, he called Dustin Poirier just like a jobber, basically a veteran, just like a journeyman guy. Um, he said he'll sit him down with a jab. Took 40 seconds to knock him out. Now he's predicting uh, 60 seconds. So we'll see if that uh, comes to fruition. But it's just one of those things where, yes, both guys have made a ton of improvements since the last time we saw them seven years ago now. But at the same time, like, you know, Dustin's not going to come in here and wrestle and, and grapple. And that's really Ben Connors leak is his ground game defensively. So it's like, we're going to have a striking match. Connor's arguably the most technical striker in the UFC, you know, maybe outside of Israel Adesanya. So it's, it's one of those things where I, I like Connor here. I think he, he probably pieces him up, and I think he does it pretty early. So I, li I like McGregor inside round one. And what makes this interesting for me, from Connor's perspective, though, is we still have this air of mystery about how good Connor McGregor, this modern version of Connor McGregor, is. Because yes, there was that fight against Cowboy, but you had a combination of Cowboy maybe being a bit chop worn. Um, we know the Cowboy doesn't start very well whatsoever. And that's how it played out in that fight. So we've only got 40, sec 40 seconds of action to determine this new Conor McGregor. So there's still that element of unknown. Plus, the fight took place at welterweight. This one's going to be a lightweight. So how are those 15 extra pounds going to play into the factor? Um, I, it's a very intriguing fight for me. But I, I, I share the concerns with you when it comes to Dustin Poirier. And I think those were emphasised when he fought Dan Hooker. I don't know if it was maybe because Dustin was maybe a bit short on confidence because of what happened against Khabib or whether Dan Hooker was a much tougher, tougher opponent than he expected. But Poirier always had this habit, especially sort of pre-Michael Johnson. He would just load up on his shots a bit too much. He would overstretch, trying to go for that big finishing shot all the time. And he started to revert back to that in the Dan Hooker fight. He was throwing some bombs in that second round and we know how clinical conor mcgregor can be we saw that against eddie alvarez eddie was overstretching with a lot of those big overhands and conor just with that piston left hand was tagging him over and over again if dustin poirier does that against conor mcgregor this time around we're going to get a similar result to what we did first time yeah, and, that, and that's a really another great point is just the the counter striking of Conor McGregor. Dustin kind of plays exactly into that. And the first time they fought, you know, Dustin was spamming a lot of leg kicks early. Those are type of things where, yeah, that can give Conor problems if the fight goes the full five rounds. But as we talked about before, McGregor fights don't usually go outside the first round or two. So it's like one of those things where um, I, I'd be very surprised if Poirier comes in here and, and really even um, even makes it look all that competitive, to be honest with you. And I know that's kind of harsh, and I, I love Dustin Poirier as well, um, but it's just one of those things where I, I think Connor his striking is levels better than than Dustin Poirier. And and it's not to take away from Poirier, uh, but it's also the durability as well. You know, we barely seen Connor, you know, Habib haven't had him stumbled a little bit in their fight, but we've, we've hardly even seen Connor hurt. And Dustin, you know, not only Connor was the first one to knock him out, but he's been knocked out since then. He's been in a couple wars as well since then, the Max Holloway fight, the Dan Hooker fight. So it's just one of those things where it's just another uh, area where I favor uh, Conor McGregor in terms of the durability. What are the upsides when it comes to Dustin Poirier? Because there are going to be people out there that want to find a reason to back him. What is his path to victory? That's the thing. It's really hard for me to even find a path to victory for him. I guess you could say that if he comes in with like a wrestle-heavy game plan, but it's one of those things where we're trying to create a narrative because we haven't seen, and that's something that I... I've struggled with at times in some matchups is we try to we try to play the coach. So we're like, oh, well, the easiest way for this guy to win, well, he'll just, you know, just come in and wrestle. That's clearly his path to victory here, right? But when it's something that we've never seen that fighter really do, you know, Dustin averages under one takedown, I believe, per 15. So it's like he's not going to come in here 
and aggressively wrestle, even though he would theoretically have an advantage on the mat. So it's just kind of one of those things where it might make sense for him to do that, but because we haven't seen it, I, I find it hard to believe that it'll actually happen. I think if I have to look for an upside when it comes to Dustin Poirier, I think that his durability is going to be a lot better than it was first time around. I think the extra 15 pounds of weight helps him in this regard. Um, 15 pounds, 10 pounds, I should say. Because um, he was, I mean, compare physically Dustin Poirier at featherweight to what he is at lightweight. He is a much thicker, more durable fighter than he was first time around. So I think that's, he's going to maybe take those big shots a lot better than what he did first time against Connor. Um, and also as well, there's always the question about Connor's conditioning. He starts very aggressively, very fast. And as we saw against Nate Diaz, as we saw against Khabib, that the issue of cardio, can he go the full five rounds, even against Floyd Mayweather, once he got into the later stages, Connor was a shadow of the fighter that he once was. Whereas Dustin Poirier, I think, retains his cardio a lot better, as we saw against Dan Hooker. Yeah, and that, that really is his, I, I would say his only advantage in this fight is that we know he can go a hard five rounds. And we've seen Connor go five, but like you, you mentioned it, outside of the first probably two rounds, you really start to see the, the decline in terms of the output, the quickness. Um, it, it, it's pretty evident. So, um, yeah, I think that would go definitely in, in Portier's camp. But, again, I, I, I find this one hard to believe seeing even round three. So I'd be surprised if it goes the full five. For me, the biggest clue about this result, because we're coming up to where we have to make our predictions for this fight. For me, the biggest clue of how this fight's going to go is the fact that Connor is taking it in the first place. And I'll, I'll explain why. Connor is a lot more business savvy than a lot of other fighters. I think there's fighters like Dustin who are willing to take on anyone and everyone. Connor's in a position right now where he can pick and choose the fights that most benefit him. Because when he announced that he was going to be making his comeback for 2020, all logic should have said, fight Justin Gagey. But he chose Cowboy because it had the most reward for the lowest risk. And that's how it turned out. He wouldn't have taken this fight against Dustin Poirier if he didn't think that he could win it. 100%. You know, you hit the nail on the head. You know, he's he's handpicking his matches. And he's doing that in this fight because A, he's done it before. But B, he's confident that he can do it again. And, and that's the main thing here. Like, Connor's not accepting the fight against Justin Gaethje because he knows, you know, why would he want to take that level of damage even if he wins? You know, the upside is, is less than the downside in, in that aspect. You know, a fight, a potential fight against Charles Oliveira, that's a nightmare matchup for Conor McGregor. So he's not putting pen to paper on, on those bouts, but against Dustin Poirier, who he knows he has a striking advantage, a durability advantage, a power advantage. Yeah, I, I think it makes total sense. I think McGregor knocks him out. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a McGregor knockout as well. Um, I think Dustin's gonna do enough to survive the first round, but can all get it done in second. I see something similar to the Eddie Alvarez fight. Yeah, I like it. I, I like inside round one. I don't know about the uh, inside sixty seconds. <laughs> that's that's pretty difficult to do, but uh, we'll see if Connor can get it done for us. So that's the preview for USC 257. On the whole, would you say this is one of the, the stronger cards, the weaker cards that the UFC have done? Where would you rank this one? I mean, I wouldn't say it's a terrible card. There's definitely some talent on it. You know, it's it, it's tough for them to stack Connor cards because he ends up getting paid so much and gets a ton of the pay-per-view buy, buys and all that. So it's really hard to put a ton of other stars on it. But I think in terms of like, you mentioned it before, highlighting some of the maybe lesser paid fighters um, like Amanda Hebos, who is a potential star, you know, Dan Hooker. And not to say they don't get paid anything, but just, you yeah. know what I mean, like people like that who they don't have to break the bank, but they can also showcase them. I think it's a pretty strong card overall. Uh, it's one I'm certainly going to be looking forward to. I'll need to um, get my sleeping bag out for that one. Three o'clock over in the UK. Have to pay for box office for this one. Always do when it comes to Connor. Uh, you going to be buying this one? Absolutely. I, I, I buy every single one. I'm a UFC fan. Yeah. yeah, you're not worried about Dana trying to get all those pirates, are you? <laughs> That's right. Uh, John, I want to say a big thank you for uh, you taking time out of your busy schedule to do this uh, preview with me. 
Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And if anything happens to John Martian, then we'll be very happy to have you back. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. I definitely appreciate it. If you guys want to check out more of my stuff, uh, head on over to ftndaily.com, ftnbets.com. And we're also on iTunes now as well, doing main card breakdowns for free at uh, Undisputed MMA. And thank you very much. I'll be checking that one out. I'm sure you'll be doing a preview for Kiesa versus Magni. Absolutely. Every card. We don't we don't take days off over here. And I want to say a big thank you to everyone who's been tuning in for the INC preview show. Please give it a like, subscribe, um, hit every sort of button that you can, share with your friends. Uh, just do whatever you can to try and get this aspect of the channel off the ground. Uh, with that being said, I've been Carl Bainbridge. That's been John Kelly. And this is the INC. And thank you for watching. Bye-bye for now.